from the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia to around the globe. You're listening to Shark Bite Biz, your exclusive place for business strategy, sales, marketing, and tech in the roaring 20s. And now, here's your host, David Strausser. I'm your glamorous host, David Strausser, and it's time for another epic episode of Shark Bite Biz, your place to learn how to grow a business during complete chaos. We have another fun episode scheduled today. We're going to discuss another amazing career transformation. And it's always fun to see where the road of life ends up taking you, even when you think you have it all figured out. It's a great story of mixing passion with the event industry, with a business background, and really allowing creatives to have somebody there with a strong business foundation to allow them to grow their businesses. We're going to discuss some important topics for creative business owners, like the top mistakes that creatives make in their businesses and what they can really do to think more analytically about their businesses, you know, kind of like a CFO. Now, we aren't just going to talk about where creatives can improve. We're also gonna chat about what creatives do right and what we can learn from them also. So who is today's guest? So glad you asked, Michelle Loretta. Michelle Loretta is a strategist for the events industry and creator of B Sage Consulting. Since 2009, she has blended her past as an accountant for Deloitte, a sales and marketing manager for DDLA, a merchandiser for Coach, and a wedding stationary entrepreneur to help events industry entrepreneurs better their businesses. B-Sage Consulting produces the B-Sage Conference, a master-level event for wedding professionals nationwide. Michelle has been asked to speak at a number of industry conferences, including Wedding Wire World, NACE Experience, and the special event. She was named to the top 1,000 event professionals by BizBash in 2019. So without further delay, let's bring Michelle on in here. Business Operations. Michelle, welcome to Shark Bite Biz. So glad to have you here today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk to you. Oh, yeah, this is going to be a fun discussion today. So obviously, I mean, I have your background here, and it's pretty amazing. That's why you're with us. But for all our viewers, listeners out there, do us a favor. Tell us, what makes Michelle, Michelle? What's your background, your experience? What do you do for a living? So I'm Michelle Loretta. I'm the owner of B-Sage Consulting, and I do business consulting for event industry business owners. My background is in finance and accounting. I also worked in sales and marketing way back in the day. I got first into the events industry as a stationary designer. And in 2009, I started writing a business blog for the events industry. So how to have a smarter business. Um, I found that I could talk on a lot of my previous career points um, to an industry that is extremely creative, but maybe isn't always looking at financials or thinking about yeah. marketing a ROI and those sorts of things. So, um, so the blog initially just started as a way for me to connect with people in my industry. And then it evolved into the consulting business that it is today, almost 
12 years consulting um, event, uh, event industry business owners. You know, I, I've got to say, and this is a good thing about why you don't judge a book by its cover. <laughs> Funny story, um, you know, you're in accounting, so I assume that you know the ERP Sage. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they, you know, they're, I've been ERP as well, too. And yeah. With Vision 33, we do SAP Business One. So uh -huh. I'm seeing Sage Consulting, and I'm thinking, like, oh, my God, this is a Sage partner. This is a competitor <laughs> of mine. I shouldn't have them on. No. But then I read through the bio, and, uh, you know, first thing I saw was under the bio was degree in account. I'm like, yeah, I, I, I don't think my employer, even though this is my own project, I don't think they would appreciate <laughs> that. Uh, but then I read through the rest of it. I'm like, oh, thank God. You know, you know we're good. Yeah. We're clear. It Sage, sage event business owners and um, comes from, you know, the wisdom being more wise in your business. Yeah. And we don't have any trademark infringement. We actually own all our trademarks. So we don't yeah, have yeah, any, yeah. any infringements with the software. But it's funny because most people aren't even aware of that in, you know, creative businesses or the events industry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I yeah, I know. So I, I just had to tell you, I thought that was that was funny because that was like my my first panic attack with a guest coming on the show where it's like, oh my God, should I or should I? But I read it and you know, you you did have you I guess what I want to say is in this show we like to focus on career transformation. Yeah. And that's something that you did. I mean, you went into accounting in the corporate world with, you know, like you were saying, Deloitte, um, and you ended up changing to do something more of what you loved, it seems. Yeah. Like. Yeah. I made two a little big bit shifts. Yeah. 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 I've had two big shifts in my career. Um, and so the first one was um, leaving, you know, the corporate, the big, at that time it was big six. Now it's big four accounting world. And so leaving mm -hmm. Deloitte, um, I think, you know, when you're in your 20s, you uh, can get a little restless, maybe working in the corporate mm -hmm. world. It's funny now being older and looking back and saying like, oh, you know, that there's, there's definitely a lot of um, wonderful things that I learned in those experiences. And in fact, the whole reason I do what I do is because of the foundation that I achieved yeah. at Deloitte. So, um, so, but at, in those early years, you are restless and you want to do something more creative. And so, my first jump was into working for a small importer of children's apparel. <laughs> they were an importer. Um, they imported children's clothing from Europe. And so I managed their West Coast sales and um, marketing and, and those things. And so that was that was a jump because I wasn't even using any of my accounting. I did sales forecasting, you know, but that was a little bit different from mm -hmm. what I had done at, at Deloitte. So it was really um kind of broadening um, my business skills into a completely different area. And there was a lot of creativity because of the brands that we were representing as well. Um, and then I worked Creativity and entrepreneurs is something that seems to go together a lot. Oh, There's absolutely. Absolutely. A lot of creative business owners out there. Yeah. And I tell people all the time, like, even if you're not artistic as an entrepreneur, you are creative in a way because you're having to make things all the time. You're having to, you know, make new services or make new products, you know, even yeah, if no, you that, exactly. Yeah. I mean, like I, I'll use myself as an example. If, 
you ask me to draw something, it's going to be stick figures. <laughs> My seven-year-old draws better than me. In fact, I think the three-year-old draws better than me. But um, I, I can't do anything artistic. But if you ask me, like, hey, uh, we're making an ad, what should it look like? You know, or for example, look at the like Shark Bite Biz, the from the logo yes. to the intro music, stuff like that. I designed that all myself. Now I couldn't actually do the artistic part, <laughs> but it started in my head, and then yeah. I had to tell somebody that was able to take my vision to life. Yes, it's that ideation process that's the creative part of being an entrepreneur, right? Coming up with yeah. ideas all the time. And yeah, that's what entrepreneurs, they always have a, a new idea every minute, something new to sell, something, some new business concepts, some new business ideas. So, um, do you think it's yes. hard to stay focused because of that? I mean, not to oh, get for sidetracked some for sure. So I see two different kinds of, um, entrepreneurs. I see the entrepreneur and you know, who talks about this is Michael Gerber in the E-Myth. Um, okay. he talks about, uh, well, three different types of, uh, you know, business owners. So I'll touch upon two of them. Um, you know, one is the technician. So this is an artist that like, they love their craft. And so mm -hmm. they start a business because they absolutely love this craft. And it's unusual that someone's going to give them a job to be able to live out their craft making all the time, whether it's floral design or whether it's designing stationery, designing websites. So they start right. their business out of a need to create something, Right. Those yeah. people aren't necessarily starting a business because they want to, you know, have world domination with their <laughs> empire, right? And then there's the, the, the true entrepreneur, which starts a business because they have an idea of how they want to do something better, a service or a product. And they really think about like the business aspects of, you know, creating a growth strategy. So, right. And, and, and with that. Really. I mean, when when you're saying, you know, a product or a service, it doesn't necessarily have to be a new product or a yeah. new service. It could just be a new way or a better way yes. of that product or that service. Absolutely. Absolutely. We see that all the time. Um, you know, very few businesses are set up on completely new ideas. Yes, we see, you know, innovation coming in, especially in the technology world. You know, we do see those um, inventions and, you know, innovative ideas and new strategies and new tech and new tools and things like that. But for the most part, we're taking established services or established products and finding better ways to do them or more niche ways to kind of service a client that's needs aren't being met, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. No, that's totally, totally true. I mean, I'm in the software world, and if you look, uh, there's a billion different niche softwares out there mm -hmm. for our manufacturers, the home real estate, uh, you know, those type of people that service all those individual needs much more granular, especially mm -hmm. like something like real estate. I mean, mm -hmm. SAP Business One wouldn't be really good for real estate, but some of those niche softwares out there are perfectly built for that and it's priced for that market. So yeah, yeah, I totally see what you're saying there. So what do you think some of the top mistakes some of the creative business owners make and how would you suggest them try to avoid that? 
Yeah, I, I'm pretty heavily involved in the financial side when I'm working with a client. And I think that a lot of um, creative business owners or newer entrepreneurs, they, they don't feel comfortable with the number side, the money side of the business. And so, you know, human nature is tends to, you're going to focus on what you feel more most comfortable in. So I, I think that ends up over the long term being a disservice to that business and to that business owner. Um, if uh, the, the better business owners who recognize, like, I'm not comfortable with the numbers, I don't understand this piece of my business, they will go and, and hire help um, to help them with that. You know, they'll start out maybe with a bookkeeper, definitely with a tax count, and then maybe longer term with a financial strategist, which is what I do with businesses. Um, but even then, here's the, here's the piece that people don't really always realize. Even if you have these people um, helping you in your business, you're still in charge of how your business works and how your business runs and how your business makes money. So you still need to have at least a basic understanding of how the money runs through the business. And you can hire these people to help you make stronger decisions, mm -hmm. right? Like a strong financial strategist. What I do is I try to coach my clients through making stronger decisions. I try to show them like, these are how the numbers are going to help you make stronger marketing decisions stronger operational decisions. And that's why somebody would hire me, you know, as a CFO for hire, they'd hire me to help them coast, you know, go through those numbers. So um, people are a little nervous because they're not comfortable with it. If you get more comfortable with it and like all things, right, the more, the more you practice something, the better you will become at that thing, whatever it is, yeah. whether it's numbers or yoga or, you know, football or whatever it is, you will become better at it with more practice. And so, yeah. um, that's a, that's a make or break it situation because the, the money side of the business ties to almost every single business decision that you'll make in, in the business. It really is the backbone for almost every single business decision. And so yeah. from anything like how you're going to market 100%. to how you're going to sell to how you're going to operate, should I hire more people? If I hire more people, would it actually lead to more money or will it, you know, end up breaking even or end up costing me more? Right. So um, having that structure of the numbers behind those decisions can be a complete game changer. How do they, I mean, so at a granular level, one of the things that you brought up, I thought was kind of interesting there at the end was like, if I hire more people, will it cost me more money? Will it make me more money? I mean, how do you actually figure that out from that business perspective? Yes. Oh my gosh. This is my favorite kind of challenge, actually. <laughs> yeah. It's, I Good. mean, like a big, it's a big puzzle, right? And so, you know, the first thing we do is we'll look at um, this is essentially you're talking essentially scaling. ROI. What's that? Yeah. It's, it's ROI and a return on investment for an employee, but, but not mm -hmm. every employee or person that you hire is going to, you know, be a revenue center, right? So you may not right. be hiring somebody that has a direct payoff. Um, but this is really a scaling equation, right? Like if I'm operating as a sole business owner, I call, you know, so uh, a micropreneur, right? And you are party of one running your business and you think, wow, I'm doing well just by myself. If I hire two or three more of me, then I can do two or three more times of the business, right? Like that's always the theory, right? Like mm -hmm. if I'm netting a hundred thousand all by myself, can I net 400,000 with four people? That's, that's the math people think, right? 
Um, but you actually have to like line up those numbers to see if it makes sense. If you're paying somebody $70,000 to execute the same type of work that you do, is it actually going to pay off in a net of a hundred thousand dollars? So it makes sense to me. It makes, yeah. yeah. Like what you're saying makes sense because again, falling back to what, what I do, I mean, we're very similar. Business one is essentially an accounting system. That's the backbone Mm -hmm. of the system. And we also do Sage Intact as well too. But, um, you know, with that, the way that we position it is, let's just say it's a hundred thousand dollar cost, you know, total implementation all in for year one, getting it rolled out, implemented so that they can go live is you're getting your ROI because let's just say they were using QuickBooks and Excel spreadsheets previously. Mm-hmm. Okay. Things were a mess. They may have data silos where they have to copy things down multiple times. They probably are prone to errors, all that stuff. It's costing them money and it's redundant work for them. So when we look at that for the ROI for us, which essentially would almost be the same way as if you hired another person or two to take care of this stuff for you, is that you're able to have the technology then free up your workers. So that way, instead of fixing errors and losing money because you're doing errant tasks, right? You're able to put those employees on profit, on revenue generating activities or other tasks. Yes. So is it that same thought process? Yeah, absolutely. Is is there what changes within the business operations that would enable the business to produce more, right? Whether it's implementation of soft implementation of software or implementation of new staff. Um, and then what's the time period, right? Because it doesn't happen overnight. Is it do you start to see increased profits after a couple of years? Like what is your expectation for that turnaround? Right. Um, and what I tend to see a lot of times is um with the people equation is sometimes people are thinking, well, if I hire, you know, those four people, I can have, you know, four times the profits. What they don't always realize is that sometimes, um, you know, there's like a cannibalization of of profits, right? So they end up breaking even. And so now they have a lot more staff people and they're still making the same money. Right. And so that's something that we're trying to figure out. I mean, if you're hiring four positions, you've got to figure for whatever reason, <laughs> it has at to least pay off. one of them is going to <laughs> going to turn over though. I mean, whether oh, the yeah, employee yes, doesn't work yes, out yes. or the employee isn't as good as they thought or the employee just didn't like it and decided mm-hmm. to not stick with the job. So yep. you have that X factor as well too. And that's the thing is like, and so that's why I sell, say no number exists by itself, like in a vacuum, right? Like every number mm. has, another trigger. And, and when you're hiring somebody, you're thinking like, okay, oh, I need a $70,000 salary, but there's 10 other triggers that happen that have nothing to do with numbers, right? It's, mm-hmm. you know, who do I need to hire? What, you know, what are the, what are the values that I want this person to possess? What are the skills that I need them to possess? What is my system for bringing them on training them? Is this system pretty turnkey so that if they don't work out, I can replace them, right? Like there's mm-hmm. so many little things that have nothing to do with the initial equation or the initial question, which is, can I afford this person to have them make money, right? So oh, yeah. I think that that's why people don't, they don't see the fact that like the numbers actually dictate so many of their decisions within the business. 
Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. And that's kind of the same thing with me, like how we try to help them out with our software again, because we try to give them those KPIs and stuff yes, like that. Yes. So that way, I mean, if you look at business owner, most business owners aren't with what we do. They're not in there for the day to day work, but they mm-hmm. do want to be able to log on. And they say they, this is literally what they tell us. I just want to log on have my screen appear and show me the KPIs. How much money do we owe? How much money is owed to us? How yeah. much money is overdue? How much is on back order? Stuff yeah. like that. And uh, that's just the first know. piece, right? Like right. you can see what that number is. And the second piece, which is so much more valuable is like, what is the decision that that's allowing me to make, right? Right. The number only tells you one piece of it is like, what am I going to do with that number? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. So let's talk about this. One of the things that I like to focus on on the show as well, too, is I have a recurring theme with this. And it's not just focusing on like everybody's got to do a postmortem. Okay, you got to see what did you do bad? Learn from Mm. the mistakes. Everybody knows that. But one of the I think overlooked items and I keep bringing this up all the time is you also have to learn from what you did good. I mean, you just can't look at where you did things bad. You have to look at where you did things that are good because they're good habits then that you should be reinforcing and you have to realize those. So what do you say about how, you know, I guess what creatives are doing and how we can learn from them? You know, what are they doing right and how can we learn from it? Yeah. I think um, creative business owners, at least in my field in the events industry, are, are very collaborative um, mm-hmm. and they um, they utilize each other, especially in the last 10 years. You know, I got into the industry 16 years ago and I think it was a lot more competitive then. Um, there's a little bit more of like an old guard sort of situation back then. And part of this is generational too. But in yeah. the last 10 years, I see so much collaboration happen, which to me, that's so, that gives you so much opportunity for innovation when you start to really realize like, wow, this person does this really well. I do this really well. And we can collaborate together, whether, whether it's something to execute for an actual event or whether it's something on the business side of things. So I see a lot more, mm-hmm. um, you know, sharing of resources and tools and information. And, um, and that makes us all stronger. And I think that makes the industry stronger. And I think that makes small businesses stronger. I've seen it, especially in the last eight months in terms of the pandemic, um, you know, our, our industry specifically. Wait, what, what, what pandemic are you, what pandemic are you what speaking pandemic? of? <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully when people are looking at this in 2023, they'll be like, oh yeah, that's right. We had a pandemic back then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's going to be one of those defining moments, I think, mm-hmm. of our, our lives that, yeah. People are going to remember, I mean, just like, you know, September 11th, for example, growing up, remember that, that moment where you are, how life was the days Mm -hmm. after stuff like that. Same thing with, with the pandemic. It's going to be a staple, I think, for our generation. Yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, already people are like, where were you March 15th? Because March 15th was kind of like that cutoff for a lot of people in the country where the schools shut down and businesses closed all of a sudden. I know for some people it was March 1st and some people it was a little bit later, but a lot of people kind of use that March 15th as a reference point. We're already having those conversations. So yeah. So the, in the events industry, you know, our industry has been completely shut down um, and it continues to be shut down, which is really hard. 
And so I, I've seen that collaboration come really strong right now. And um, collaboration through like, digital transformation. What's that? Collaboration through digital transformation. As uh, far as doing webinars and uh, yeah, things like sure. that. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, on one level for the client, like transforming, um, some, some events have been able to transform to virtual, um, not right. all, um, depending on the nature of the event. But also, I think in terms of um, our own education as an industry, there's been just a lot of like, okay, let's figure out how our industry is going to survive. I'm going to teach a webinar on cash flow strategy, and I'm going to teach a uh, webinar on messaging, and I'm going to teach a webinar on contracts right now, which is a really big thing in our industry as well, right? So yeah, um, yeah, the digital—it's really interesting. The digital space, um, there are things that are not going to go away, right? Like they've mm -hmm. become part of how we're going to do business. So a lot of these conferences in our industry that have moved online. Um, right. I think we will go back to, you know, in-person events. We do realize how important that is and the virtual can't capture everything, but the virtual is going to become a necessary component of all of those in-person events, right? So we're going to see a lot more hybrid in terms of the way events are happening. Yeah, we had an event specialist back, uh, I think it was during the summer, his name was Sam Castro. And he was telling us that the trend that he was seeing now, I think the, the current case counts was much lower around mm -hmm. that time. Mm -hmm. And he was in Florida, I believe. Mm -hmm. But he was seeing a lot of hybrid events where mm -hmm. it would be a webinar online. And then you would have a very, very, very limited uh, amount of people in person, mass, yeah. socially distancing, stuff yes. like that. And he, he really felt that going forward, even once this pandemic is done, we're probably going to see a lot more hybrid events in I the agree. future. That might be something that sticks around. I, I agree. I agree. It's really interesting. And it's still so new. I feel like we're still trying to figure out what that looks like. Um, mm -hmm. You know, in terms of kind of like this pod structure where you can have like a hybrid you know, weddings. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't, uh, weddings is a little bit hard, but there's going to be a live streaming component hands down, regardless of, you know, how weddings, you know, weddings are going to always be in person, but there's going to be a, a streaming uh, component to it forever. Now people are going to want to see that live stream of the wedding. Um, it was already oh, yeah. kind of going in that direction, even with, you know, the boom of Facebook live yep. and Instagram stories and people were already broadcasting their weddings and short clips as it was. But now I think, um, oh, yeah. it's, it's necessary. It's not just a fashion, you know, thing, right? Can't wait to log on to Facebook to see the next wedding and see the next <laughs> funeral. Yeah, watched a wedding on Facebook <laughs> like a couple months ago, you know, yeah, and yeah. that I didn't really even know that well. Um, you know, it was like a work colleague and <laughs> it was fun. It was really fun watching her wedding and I wouldn't have been invited to the real one. So, cause I'm not yeah. that either. Yeah. It was it great. Was. That's great. So let's see. <laughs> what about uh, CFOs? How can business owners think more like a CFO in yeah. their business? Yeah, I think it comes down to really trying to understand what your numbers are telling you and talking to, right? So first, you need to make sure that you have a very basic understanding of, you know, accounting and financial strategy. 
And then mm -hmm. you have to recognize also that um, there's three different parts to financial strategy. One is the tax piece, right? And so right. you should have a tax expert because, you know, even, you know, the most expert person, I'm not a tax expert because I'm not in the tax code every single week. So you do need to right. have a tax a tax person, a bookkeeper, if your business is at that point where you can have somebody manage your bookkeeping, and then a financial strategist, if your business is also at that point where you're trying to grow on a, on another level. Um, if you want to think like a CFO, you have to be thinking of those three areas very separately. Like what's my tax strategy? What's my accounting bookkeeping strategy? And what's my actual like for financial strategy moving forward, looking at my picture forward. Um, so, so a CFO is going to make sure that make the time to do all of those things. And that's where right. I see a lot of people is that they just don't take the time to do that. Um, and so you're taking time to look at your history. So what's happened in the past through your reports and, and use that information to make decisions for the future, right? So one of them is financial history and one of them is financial planning. And so a CFO will do those two things. They will take a look at the past in order to make decisions for the future. And so right. if you want to think more like a CFO, you're going to take time to look at your reports, to look at financial information. And then you're going to sit and you're going to say, hey, what's my my strategy for the upcoming year, for the upcoming two years? Um, mm -hmm. I encourage people to make a cash flow plan and that inc that um, ties in, you know, sales goals, sales forecasts and expense budgets. It puts it all together so that you know what's happening with your cash picture at any point in time. That's what businesses need to know is their cash situation. You know, cash is the make or break it for small businesses. Oh, yeah, definitely. And right now, the cash flow for many small businesses, especially in the event industry, is mm -hmm. very tight. So I guess mm -hmm. to kind of start wrapping this up here, what final words of advice would you have, you know, around cash flow for, you know, uh, creative businesses in this space? Yeah. So um, number one, create a cash flow strategy so that you can actually see that roadmap. And um, the, the more often you use and incorporate it, you actually do get better at foreseeing the future. Yeah. The first time it's very loose, but over time, I mean, every client that I have, it's like, wow, I know exactly what's going to happen with my business in the mm -hmm. next six months. That gives you so much control, especially now we're going in the pandemic. My clients are like, I know what's happening in my business, even though I don't have any events for the next you know, year. So number right. one is create a cash flow strategy. The second thing is you have to have a, a cash buffer and everyone is, you know, risk relationship is a little bit different. I'd say before the pandemic, some people were like one month, two months is fine. And now people are realizing I want a cash buffer of six months, right? You're right. Uh, <laughs> You know, and even six months, even given the pandemic may be a lot for some people, right? That secret mm -hmm. number that people say is like about three months, right? Again, depends on your, your risk, your relationship with risk. The cash buffer is going to help you in times of crisis, whether it's a pandemic or whether it's, you know, a recession or something happens in your personal life and you need to pull away from your business for a little bit. So those are the yeah. two pieces of advice I have for people. Wow, that's perfect advice. You know, this has been such a pleasure. How can people reach out to you? They can find me at bsageconsulting.com. So B-E, Sage, S-A-G-E. So this is like bwiseconsulting.com. <laughs> 
Perfect, perfect. And I will definitely make sure that we put that link in the descriptions on YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, everywhere that you can watch or listen to this show. Thank you again, Michelle. This has been so fun to talk with you and pick your brain about money. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for having me. This was really fun. Oh, thank you. Cheers. Wow, such a great conversation with Michelle. First, if you found this interview helpful, if it gave you some insights for business and you think it can help you grow, do us a favor. We're trying to build this Shark Bite Biz community. Smash that like button, smash that subscribe button. But if you really want to help out, do me a solid, please. I'm asking you, let's get Michelle Loretta and Shark Bite Biz trending. Share this video out to your network. Now let's get back on track talking to Michelle, okay? You've got to remember some of the top mistakes that Michelle brings up. The financial side of things, especially newer business owners, you know, they're just not really that comfortable with managing their finances. As Michelle said, that's the piece that a lot of people don't realize that, hey, you can get all these people around you, all these advisors, all these financial gurus, sales gurus, marketing gurus, whatever it is, you can get them all around you, but you're still in charge. So help your business by putting all those strong pieces around you so that you can make better decisions. Another area of the conversation that actually hit my specialty was when we were talking about software solutions. I deal with tier one solutions for small to mid-sized businesses, and there is a cost to that. But that cost oftentimes is outweighed by the savings of double data entry, managing Excel spreadsheets, and it really just allows businesses to get a quick ROI. And Michelle brings up another great point of just figuring out How long will it be until you can get an ROI from an operational standpoint if you do digitally transform with a new solution for business management? Lastly, Michelle brings up the great example, you know, about hiring four people and watching out because even if you're hiring four people, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to get four times the profits. As she puts it, you can easily cannibalize your profits as well because a lot of times what will happen is you are earning the same revenue, but now you have more additional overhead with those additional employees. So it's really not helping you drive revenue. And that's where I think, uh, uh, you know, digitally transforming, getting a new software solution can really help you all out. So this was a fun video, a great conversation with Michelle. What did you all think? What software solution do you use to manage your business? What did you think of the interview with Michelle? Leave your comments down below. And like always, if you want to be a guest on the show, if you got a great business story to tell, shoot me an email, david at sharkbitebiz.com. Once again, I'm David Strasser. This is Shark Bite Biz, and we'll see you all next episode. Cheers. Thank you for listening to Shark Bite Biz.
We hope you got some insightful info from this podcast. Be sure to subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and visit us on the web at www.sharkbitebiz.com. How has business changed for you in the 20s? Email us at podcast at sharkbitebiz.com so you can join us and share your story. 